thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So we're continuing our Bible study of the book of Genesis, chapter 23. But before we get to chapter 23, uh, there is an important passage in chapter 22 that we haven't covered that uh, is really uh, perhaps one of the most important passages of the Old Testament. So let's, um, let's go back to chapter 22 for a brief moment. Recall that in chapter 22, the, um, the Lord had asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his son. And uh, at the very last moment, the Lord provides a ram instead of Isaac. But there's something really peculiar that he says, beginning with verse 15 in chapter 22. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you and I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And by your descendants shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves because you have obeyed my voice. So let's key in on what what the Lord said here. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. That means what? A lot. A lot and a lot and a lot. Does it mean 1.2 million? Does that fit the bill? Okay, keep that one fact in mind. Your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. What does that mean? What does it mean to possess the gate of your enemy? Not just defeat. I mean, think, the gate, what, what, what gate are we talking about? No, 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 no. Just basic, practical things. Ancient time. Where do you find a gate? The city. So if you possess the gate, what do you possess? So you haven't just defeated them out in open battle, have you? You've overtaken their cities. Yeah? That's what that means. Of their enemies. Hmm? 
In the time of Jesus Christ, who is the enemy? Rome. Rome. Did the descendants of Abraham possess the gate of Rome? It's a yes or no answer. Yes? Did the Jews in the time of Jesus rule Rome? Very simple question. Right? No, no this is, this is, this, those are not trick questions. Just very simple, basic questions. No, did they? Before that, have they possessed the gates of the Greeks? All right. What about the Assyrians? The Babylonians? The Persians? Were they not all enemies? Are you king when I'm what I'm king here? Okay. So, fact number two. And then, And by your descendants shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves. Did this happen? Yes. Oh? Where? No, 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 no. no. Don't, don't go fancy on me right now. Just very simple, very natural. Leave Jesus out of the picture. Just, just, Abraham's descendants are, the Israel, Israel is Abraham's descendant, right? That, that's all. Did this happen? And put yourself in Abraham's shoes. I suppose I should have started right there. Better yet, put yourself in the shoes of any Jew, even today. When they read this passage here, would they say this has been fulfilled? Okay. Has any of it been fulfilled? Any of the three things that I just read to you? Are the Jews as numerous as the stars of the heaven and the seashore of the sand? Are they? No. Do they possess the gates of their enemies? No. Do all nations bless themselves by them? No. Do they? Okay. Thank you. Good. No. Exactly. Exactly. This is an important emphasis. Now, this is what, G what God promised. Actually, did He promise in this passage here? Ah. He said, I will indeed... Mm -hmm. By myself I have sworn. What does it mean, by myself I have sworn? Why does He say, by myself? And why does He swear in His name? There's nobody else to swear by. And furthermore... In his case, unlike us, whatever he says is going to happen, right? There's no messing around. I mean, this is God. Okay. So what is that equivalent to when God swears by himself? Look at it from a human point of view. Remember what we said? I can give you my word, right? But if I really want you to put weight into what I'm saying, what do I do? I swear by who? By God. Right? I don't swear by myself. But there's no difference between swearing by myself and giving you my word. Right? I have to swear by a higher authority. So I swear by God. Now when I swear by God, what happens to me? Come on. We've been talking about this every, almost every week. Yes. I am invoking now the covenant. So, if I'm true to... What I just said, what happens to me? I'm blessed. And if I'm not true, what happens to me? Okay. What did God just do right now? He swore by His name. Let's follow 
the mechanics of the covenant. If it happens, what would happen to God? If what he says comes true, what happens to him? He's blessed. If it doesn't, what happens to him? Okay. What did we say about the three things that God said are going to happen? Did they happen? So, what happens to God? God just put himself under a curse. Now, which curse is that? Adam and Eve. Do you see how back then, when he's speaking to Abraham, the second person, Jesus is speaking to Abraham, and he's already foretelling the incarnation and the cross? He is putting himself under a curse. He's putting on, he's putting the curse on him. Do you think that when God said all these things are going to happen, he didn't know that it's not going to happen from a natural order, that Israel will not be able to fulfill any of these things? Do you think he knew that? Yeah. He's doing it with full knowledge that they are not going to be able to fulfill these promises. They will not be able to overtake the gate of their enemies. Their descendants will not be as numerous as the seashore. All nations shall not bless themselves by Israel. Do you now have a deeper understanding of why Jesus was upset when he was at the temple and saw the money changers? Where were those money changers? Where were they located? In the outer court called what? The court of the Gentiles. That was supposed to be the court where all the Gentiles would come and worship the Lord. They could not enter into the court of the men and the women, and they could not enter into the court of the priest. That was reserved to those who are of the house of Israel. But there was a court for them precisely, specifically, because of this promise, so that all nations might bless themselves by Israel. And what did Israel do? They put the sheep and the oxen in the court of the Gentiles, not just out of practicality, but to express their contempt to the Gentiles. This is what you are like. In essence, it was the epitome of the breaking of the promise that he did, that he gave to Abraham here. Do you understand? God placed himself under a curse. If you read the letters of St. Paul, he says, speaking of the crucifixion, he says, and very interestingly, in Deuteronomy, when you read Deuteronomy, there are many, many curses that apply to nations or communities. There is one and only one curse that applies to an individual. Only one. In all the book of Deuteronomy, there's only one curse that applies to an individual. You know what that curse is? Cursed be the man that hang off a tree. And what was the cross called? The tree. He hung from the tree. That is the curse that he 
took upon himself out of love for us way back when with Abraham. By myself I have sworn he was going to bring it to fulfillment. And he did. Now, let's look at those three promises through a Christian eye. Number one, are Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the seashore? Yes. Number two, do we possess the gates of our enemies? Where do we know, from what, what passage tells us that explicitly? The gates of Hades shall not prevail against her. When Jesus gave the blessing to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven, and I tell you, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against her. 99.99% of Catholics, when, when they hear these words, something happened in their brains and they perform an inversion. When they hear the gates of Hades shall not prevail against her, the image they form in their minds is Hades attacking the church and not able to prevail on the church. So the church sort of in a defensive position, holding herself against Hades. But that's not what the text is saying. The gates of Hades, the gates of Hades, shall not prevail against her. What does that mean? The church overtakes Hades. Do you understand that? No? The gates of Hades, think of Hades as a city. Right here in this text, we have... In, in 22, your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. That means that the gates of their enemies will not prevail against them. The gates of the enemies will not stand when the descendants of Abraham attack that city. They will, they will open and the descendants of Abraham will conquer the city. Yes? The gates of Hades shall not prevail against her. The Catholic Church will attack Hades and open and conquer Hades. What does that translate into today? Notice he didn't say Gehenna. They're Hades and Gehenna. Jesus uses both expressions. And he doesn't use them interchangeably. They mean two different things. Gehenna is literally hell. Gihenon, the valley of Hinnom where they had only trash burning constantly outside of Jerusalem. Because that's where one king performed um, infant sacrifice to the god Moloch. And none of the Jews would ever want to live there. So they used that to drop garbage, and it was burning constantly. And that's the image that Jesus used of hell, and that's Gehenna, the, the, the valley of Hinnom. Hades, on the other hand, is the abode of the dead. It includes Gehenna, but it's not only Gehenna. It's also the portion of the abode of the dead where the just would go and wait until the gates of heaven are open. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against her. What does that mean? It means that the church has the power 
to release souls who are in Hades before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And after his death and resurrection, what did Hades become? What did this abode of the dead become? Purgatory. And that's why through the prayers of the church, we can release souls from purgatory. It's all through the merit of Jesus Christ, of course, but he gave authority to his church to be able to dispense of the merits that he has gained for us. Yeah? Do all nations bless themselves by the church? Yes. The church is everywhere. It has become reality when he made it reality by taking on that curse and turning the curse into a blessing through his own power. That's what he did. That's why this text is so important for us. And I would also add, that's why it is almost impossible to understand Scripture without the covenant. Because without the covenant, that text is obscure. What does it mean by myself, I swore? And what does he swear for? And what's the implication? We miss the point. Any questions on this passage before we move on? All right. Chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from, uh, from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury, bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Here I my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our sepulchres. None of us will withhold you his sepulchre or hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a possession for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the, at the gate of the city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead." And Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, In the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I will give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed with Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver which he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah's wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a possession 
for burying place by the Hittites. Now, it's obvious that it, um, we are going through a lot of detail over one seemingly inconsequential event. Abraham buying a field. It's very interesting that typically scripture is very terse with these things. Normally you would have said, and Abraham bought the field and buried Sarah and we move on. And yet here we spend almost the whole chapter discussing in full detail this business of buying a field. And we, we, should, we, should, um, we should understand it in its proper context. Actually, before I do that, I wanted to add one more thing about this, um, about uh, chapter 21. The promise that Jesus made was that his descendants, that Abraham's descendants, will prevail against the gated enemies. Their descendants will do these things. Not that he, God, will do it for them. They will do it. Right? It is a promise. It's a promise that he gave. And the promise holds true because he took on the curse and paid the full price on the cross. You understand that? It's a promise that has already been fulfilled. In a, in a fundamental sense, we have won. It is just a matter of making this victory a reality through our efforts. What I'm trying to point out to you is that the Catholic outlook... The Catholic outlook on the world and on the events of today can never be, can never be one of anxiety or doubt or despair or lack of hope or wonderment or doubt. It can never be that. Whenever a Catholic finds himself or herself in a situation where there is doubt or despair or confusion, or wonderment, or a sense of loss, know immediately that you are under an attack. Because the victory is ours. It has been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, and that victory will never pass away. What typically happens is that we want the victory... Without the pain. That's where our problem is. Our problem isn't that we want to be victorious. That becomes sort of secondary for us. What we want is not the pain. Right? Even though Jesus said, whomever wants to follow me, let him pick up his cross and come after me. Even though he said that, we tend to you know, bleep that out. We hear it politely, and we just let it go. And we go back focusing on no pain. That's where our problem is. Right? Our problem is twofold. Number one, a lack of faith in the Catholic Church. We don't believe in the Catholic Church. We don't love the Church the way Jesus loved the Church. We have doubts about the Church. We don't understand that outside the Catholic Church there is no salvation. 
Let me repeat it to you. This is a dogma. This is the fide. This is the highest possible dogma you have to ascend to. Outside the Catholic Church, there is no salvation. Even those who are saved through invincible ignorance, even those who are saved because they knew nothing, a baby who's baptized and dies, that's invincible ignorance. You can't sit down and teach catechism to a two-month-old baby. Not going to happen. And he's been baptized sort of outside the church. He is member of the church. Every baptized, when he's baptized, the church claims that person. Doesn't matter where he belongs to. He is a member of the church as soon as he's baptized. You understand? There is no salvation outside the Catholic Church. There are no... You, when you go to heaven, you won't find anybody who's not Catholic. There are only Catholics up there. The truth is one, can be two. Jesus Christ is one. One. Therefore, every truth in heaven is believed by all those who are in heaven. There can't be two of them. Oh, this is the section for the Catholics, and this is the section for the Orthodox, and here's the section for the Protestants, and here's over the section for the Jehovah Witnesses, and the Muslims are over there, and oh yeah, but no, we don't have to worry about the Muslims. We're convinced those are not going to go to heaven. But all the other Catholics, anybody who calls himself Christian must go to heaven. What kind of nonsense is this? Why is that important? I'm telling you why it's important. If you have members of your family, or people you know, or you love, or you care for, who are outside the Catholic Church, and if you somehow have gotten yourself comfortably convinced that they're going to make it to heaven, they're good people, they make it to heaven, what would you pray for them? What would you sacrifice for them? What would you fast for them? What would you do anything for them? They're saved. But if you know, and you understand... That outside the Catholic Church there is no salvation. You might get down on your knees. And do some heavy praying. And get going with it. Do you see the difference? You see how cruel it is to lie to people and tell them it's okay. As long as you're a good person you'll make it to heaven. That's nonsense. If all it took is for somebody to be good. To make it to heaven. Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. His death on the cross would not be necessary. It isn't a question of being good. And nothing to do with it. I am the vine, you are the branches. There is one vine. Now maybe the vine out there that produces really good grapes. If those branches are not grafted onto this vine, no matter how good they are, they're going to be torn out and burned. And that's it. It's a question of family. You're either a member of God's family or you're not. And don't take it from me, take it from St. Augustine. He who does not have the Catholic Church as his mother does not have God as his father. Don't make that mistake. Reflect on the... Go before the tabernacle, face Jesus, and ask him to reveal to you the love he has for his church. Don't take it from me. Take it from the tabernacle. Let him touch your heart with the love of the church. God, I'll tell you this. Unless you love the church, you love the church like your mom and more. Not you put up with the church. Not you think of the church as a building. Not you think of the church as some sort of a, you know, um, corporate hierarchy where the Pope is the CEO. 
No, no, no. If you don't love the church and, has, and have great devotion to her, as great of a devotion as you might have to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Because I'll tell you, if you think you can be devoted to Mary without being devoted to the church, you're lying to yourself. It is not true devotion. It is something that consoles your heart, but it is false devotion. You really have to foster a true and abiding and deep love to the church. St. Teresa of Avila, when she died, said, I die a daughter of the church. That's why she was happy. Her consolation was to die a daughter of the church. Mother Teresa, point to the Catholic Church. Padre Pio, when he was put aside for 10 years, a friend of his came and wrote a letter criticizing the decision of the, of the Vatican to ask him not to hear confession, not to say praise. He wanted to send it and defend him. Father, Padre Pio was so violent, he tore the letter and almost threw the man out and said, How dare you? How dare you criticize our mother? Understand that. Much of our ill today, much of our problems, much of the issues we face come from the fact that there is no true love to the Catholic Church. We think it's not essential, it's not necessary, it's not part of our faith, we don't need it. Jesus has one bride, one. I will build my church, one. Not my churches, he told St. Peter, my church, one. The church is one on earth and in heaven, one church. And if you, as children of the church, do not have this devotion to her, you would be like kids who cannot show devotion to their mother. And I would dare say that the, the two are typically related. That the crisis of motherhood that we face here with all, the, with all the women going out in the workforce, putting their kids in the daycare, and then thinking that that is okay, is very similar to what we have in the Catholic Church, where a lot of Catholics will find consolation among Protestant churches out there and not in their, own, in their own home. The two are related. Jesus has conquered all. The church remains forever. All the problems we see today, all the ills, all the wars, all the economic issues that we have, do you know where they're happening? Do you know where the problems we have today? Do you, know, do you understand why they're here? Do you think it is because God is incapable of facing that evil? Or is that God cannot stop it? No. God is precisely putting an end to it. An end to what? He's precisely putting an end to these powers that are preventing the church from performing her missionary work of saving souls. No salvation outside the Catholic Church. Every time through history, when you have a political power that rises against the church and wants to stop her, God puts an end to it via wars, economic woes, um, natural disasters, and so on and so forth. What you see right now, although it is disheartening and hard and disquieting, is the pangs of the birth. The birth of the church in the third millennium. This is not the end. This is the beginning. St. Paul witnessed it before the destruction of Jerusalem. And he told all the Christians, and when you see this, this happening, stand in awe. Stand in awe before the work of the Lord. See what He's going to do. Of course, in this whole thing, there's one teeny-weeny little problem. We're worried about ourselves. See? We love this world too much. We just don't want to die. And we don't want to suffer. 
And we don't do any of that stuff. That's good for the saints and the priests, well, and the nuns maybe, but not for us. We want to live fat and comfy, not worry about anything, and have a really good life from beginning to end. And then we want to go to heaven on top of that. See, this is where our problem is. This is exactly where our problem begins. Love of self instead of love of the church. So, you really want to find peace? You really want to find peace? Get down on your knees and ask God, show me how I must love the church. And then see what He does in your heart. And see the joy He puts in your heart. And see the peace that He will put in your heart. And you will be able to cross all of this knowing the peace of the Lord. That's what this is about. Beyond the, okay, we are going to, to overtake the gates of our enemies, etc. There's something much greater at work here. The peace and love that comes from God the Father, by the, God the Son, through the Holy Spirit, comes to us from our mother, the Catholic Church. Let's go back to chapter 23. Sarah lived, Sarah lived a long life, 127 years, and then she died. She died three years before Isaac's marriage. Who, Isaac will get married at, at age 40. And we see that in chapter 25, verse 20. And, um, and we, we know that because when, uh, in chapter 24, for, um, Sarah, um, um, Isaac takes Rebecca for his wife, he says he found comfort after his mother's death. So these two events happened close by. Remember, I've told you there is one theory that says that when Isaac was sacrificed, he was actually an older man. He was 33 years old. And this is one reason why we think so, because it... It would seem as if the two events are really close by. The, the sacrifice of Isaac and the death of, uh, of Sarah. That doesn't seem to indicate anything that says after a long time or after 10 years or anything. It just happens one after the other. So therefore, uh, if he was just a child when he was sacrificed, say he was seven, now three years before he was married at age 40, meaning he was 37, Sarah died. 30 years went by without a word. Nothing tells us 30 years went by. That's a good chunk of time. That's why there, there is good reason to think that Isaac was actually an older man. He, wasn't, he was a full-grown man when he went with his father. And his sacrifice, the sacrifice of Isaac, was as much his as it was Abraham. Because if he was, an old, if he was a grown-up man, dealing with his elderly father, it would have been really easy for him to push him away. Really easy. And, of course, there's a whole meditation we can do on the, on the subject of obedience when we meditate on Isaac, how he obeyed his father. But we don't have time for this. But I would strongly recommend that you take that into your own meditation and watch Isaac going up that hill, already thinking about what's going to happen, watch him being bound and being completely obedient, and compare that to when, God forbid, anybody comes to us and criticizes what we're doing. And observe how we react. The very first word that comes out of our mouth is what? Me? No. You don't understand. Let me explain to you. And we proceed to torture the other person with all the reasons why he's wrong. Because obviously he's wrong. He, we can never do anything like that. Never. Compare that to the way Isaac reacted. Not a word. There's much to be learned from that meditation. Now, 
Abraham warned Sarah. Now, you've got to imagine Abraham and Sarah. I mean, they have a very long life together. Right? But watch the sobriety of Scripture. I remember still the uh, funeral of an older woman. She was in her, I think she was close to be 70 years old. She had a good life. She'd seen her children grow around her. And um, she lacked nothing. At her funeral, her girls screamed so much that one fainted, another hyperventilated. It was ridiculous. I don't have to tell you, I don't think you've guessed it, right? There were Middle Eastern. It was, it was, it, it was uncalled for. Here's one problem with mourning. This is what we don't understand. We think it's, we sit in mourning like a chick sits on eggs, waiting for something to hatch. Meaning, waiting for this to pass by. And some people sit and sit and sit and sit for years. Let me tell you the church guideline around mourning. Six months. Six months. You're wearing black, six months. After that, you move on. Why? Why do you think the church does that? Virtue of hope. Right? It is faith, hope, and charity. Not faith, Mourning and charity. All right? Six months is appropriate. And what are you supposed to do during those six months, by the way, of mourning? Two things. Two things. You're supposed to do those two things. Number one, you get yourself back on your feet. Right? It's not going to happen on its own. You prop yourself back up on your feet. How do you do that, by the way? How do you get yourself back on your feet? And what else? When you say praying, what do you mean? Well... Maybe not fast. You have already enough on your shoulders if you're mourning. So let's not just add to it. But it's something you can do. What do you need when you're sad? What do you need? You need consolation, don't you? Where do you find it? Behind me. Daily Mass. You think anybody's going to be able to console you the way he will be able to? Daily, attend Daily Mass. Attend Daily Mass. And ask him. Ask him for his consolation. That's your duty. You know what happens when we are sad? I'm going to tell you what happens when we're sad. Sadness becomes our wealth. Because when I'm sad, I'm important. You get it? When I'm sad, I'm important. When I have a reason to be sad, I'm important. So, we sit like a chick on a bunch of eggs... Because I'm important. We don't want to let go. Because if we let go, we go back to anonymity. And that's hard. Nobody wants that. Move on. Six months. Let him work on you. Ask him for it. Avoid the temptation of wallowing in your sorrow. Move on. When you do that, you're expressing two things. Number one, you love him more than any, 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 any other person. He's with you, isn't he? Is he with you? Okay. Therefore, you love him. You give yourself six months out of the need to mourn. Jesus himself mourned. He cried when Lazarus died. 
So I'm not saying be like a robot, no emotions, no crying, no, no that, that, that's, that's wrong. You have to mourn. It's totally normal. Mourning is no. But what is the purpose of mourning? Number one, you're seeking consolation. You don't want mourning without consolation. That's horrible. It's like being in a jail and being tortured every day. Come to Him who can console you through His Holy Spirit. Come to daily Mass. And then number two, reflect on His passion. Reflect on the sorrow of Our Lady. Join yours to hers. Because your sorrow will help you understand hers better. And therefore you turn it into something that can save souls. Offer up your sorrow for souls. You'll feel a lot better. Because suddenly you go from a situation where you feel helpless, you can't do anything, to a situation where you're saving souls. That is incredible. And the third thing, you exercise the virtue of hope, knowing that He will bring your sorrow to an end. After all, that's what He promised. He said, right? I will turn your sorrow into joy. He didn't mean it only in heaven. He means it right now. Here, if you're in the church, that's what He will do for you. But you have to let Him. You have to let Him. You have to let go of this. And trust that He will take it away. There is a family in Canada, in Montreal actually. Um, Their daughter was walking one night with her friend over a bridge. Two guys followed them. They killed the guy, they raped the girl and killed her. And they were both caught. Both were caught. And convicted and put in jail for a lifetime sentence. Sometimes after this, the parents went to see one of the... Actually, they went to see both of them, but the story continues with one of the guys. They went to see one of the guys. The parents went to see him, to visit him in jail, and they told him that they forgive him for what he has done. When they said that, that man fell on the floor screaming. And he screamed for five minutes straight. Those were the worst words he could hear. But through their care, that man changed his life completely. Converted. Led a deep life of prayer. And it got to a point where the parents called him their son. We're not called to that degree of love. Not all of us can do that. But we certainly can during our period of mourning to make sure that that suffering we're going through is not lost. And we actively, actively participate in the work of the Holy Spirit in our heart to move on. You understand? For in Jesus Christ, there is no defeat for anyone who believes in Him. Any suffering you might think of, any death you might think of, anything that you are regretful or worried about is turned into glory in His resurrection. You've got to believe in that. And you believe in it when you put it into action. That's why Abraham mourned his wife, the wife he lived with for for untold years, but then he moved on. He got up and moved on. Now, a few details about this whole story. It would seem from what we've read that these people, the Hittites, were actually honoring him, right? 
If you read the text, sounds like, you know, they're being nice to him. Abraham rose. Abraham rose. It reminds us, by the way, of another rose that we find in the Gospel of St. Luke. When Our Lady, after the Annunciation, St. Luke says, And she rose and went to her cousin. That rising, the root word in the Greek is the same for rising from the dead, for resurrection. He rose. If you're mourning, you got to be able to, at one point, to rise. Meaning you move on with your life. Hmm? Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites. It's kind of interesting. He rose and bowed. He was the prince before God, but notice his humility. He bowed before the Hittites. He bowed. Those Hittites were what? You know, material people sitting at the gate, and they owned everything. He was a resident alien. By the way, that is the actual terminology used in Scripture. Resident alien. That's what he was called. Okay? He was great before God. God made him all these promises, and yet he bowed to these people. Look how hard it is for us to bow before somebody else when we think he understands nothing. Well, we, of course not. We will not bow. But look how he bows before them. And Abraham is not being hypocritical here. He's not playing a game. He is bowing out of humility. He bows. And then, if you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my side, hear me and entreat for... Oh, yeah. So he asks first to... So here's his problem. Let me tell you what his problems are. He's got two problems. Problem number one, he is a resident alien. He has no right to bury his dead within the, the, the city limits. Okay? That's problem number two, one. And problem number two, as a resident alien, he has no right to own land. Those are the two problems he wants to overcome. Now watch what happens. I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Translation, I'm a resident alien. Okay? Stranger and a sojourner is exactly what it means. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Notice, out of my sight. When you bury your dead, they must eventually be out of your sight. They have to. You understand? Because they are dead. You deal with the living. So you move on. You leave them behind in the sense of you don't have now to keep on looking at their pictures and wishing they were around and keeping that emotional attachment that has to break. It's unhealthy. You move on. Okay? And it's not, it, it happens a lot faster if you really focus on the Eucharist. You go to daily Mass and you ask God to help you with this. Help me rise up. Rise me up, O oh Lord. Lift me up. And move me along. And it will happen. Naturally, gradually, normally. You'll find yourself healed from the pain. You will remember your dead fondly. You'll pray for them. You'll think about them. But they will not haunt you with pain and sorrow and regret. All that is gone. That's how it's supposed to be. So, he asked for this. And he said, I want what? I want, give me property. 
Notice, he's straightforward. He's not trying to play games with them. He puts forth his request, which an alien resident is not allowed to own property. He wants to do two things, but he starts with the hardest one first. He's not trying to play games. He's not trying to find how is the best way to communicate. Ask for the easy one, and then maybe later you'll ask for the hard one. None of that. Straight to the point, give me property that I may bury my my dead. Now, what did I say? Hear us, my Lord. You are a mighty prince among us. So, they recognize him as a mighty prince. Now, that might have a double entendre there. Because on the one hand, they're recognizing his authority. On the other hand, they're recognizing his authority. Right? That guy has weapons. So, we don't know which one it is. Now, you're dealing with the typical ambiguous Middle Eastern politeness. right? When somebody's talking to you, you don't know if they're actually insulting you or praising you. And sometimes it's both at the same time. And that's what's happening here. Hear us, my Lord. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our sepulchers. What did they give him? What did they just give him? The right to do what? To bury his dead. Not to own property. He said, give me property. They said, bury your dead in our choicest sepulchers. Why do you think? Well, you bury your dead in my choicest sepulchers. What can I do? When I need the sepulcher, I'll move your dead away. You buried your dead in my sepulcher. It's still mine. Right? So I'll leave your dead there for a couple of months and I'll move them out when I need it. You get it? So it sounds like they're honoring him. In fact, they're not. They're basically saying, "Uh uh-uh. You're not going to get what you want. You take some thinking. That kind of diplomacy is really tricky. Right? So bury your dead in our choicest sepulcher. None of us will withhold from you his sepulcher or hinder you from burying your dead. They're all wide open. Go ahead. What does that mean? None of us will withhold from his sepulcher. Meaning... How come none of, that, none of them will? Because it's an easy solution, right? We'll accommodate you for a short time, and then after that, we'll take care of business. Your dead won't stay there. So he basically got a... On the surface, they're saying, go ahead and bury your dead, but in reality, they're basically not budging. And he said to them, if you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar. So he lashes on the first and he pushes back to the second. Now he specifically is asking for something. Initially he said, let me buy a piece of land. Now he wants to tell them exactly what he wants. Usually scripture does not mention the name of a pagan, the full names, some, someone, son of someone. The fact that it does here, Ephron, son of Zohar, presumably means that he was a nobleman. Right? Lots of possession. That he may give me the cave, the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, it is at the end of his field, for the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a possession for bearing place. What does he say for a full price? Pardon? Yeah, but why for a full price? Because he does not want anyone, any of the descendants of of, uh, Zohar, to come and contend it. 
You stole the land for my granddaddy. You only paid him a piece, you know, a fraction of what it, was, what it was worth. I want it back. See how careful he is? That's why he says for a full price. He knows what he's dealing with. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham. And hearing that. So why isn't Abraham doesn't talk to him directly? Why is it Ephron? Please, why does he speak to everybody? Exactly. He wants the whole, he wants essentially the council of the city to be a witness to this transaction. That's why he speaks to them. Now, he, now Ephron answers. And notice it says, In the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of the city, any formal transaction was transacted at the gate of the city. That was the local, the location where all these things would happen, the gate of the city. Now, at the gate of the city doesn't necessarily mean right in the middle of the gate as you have camels coming in and out and are standing right there. It means by the gate. All right? And, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. What did Abraham ask for? He asked for the cave. What is he giving him? The field. Why is he doing that? Bargaining. Is it out of the generosity of his heart? No. What does he see? He's seeing a good business. Here's a guy. He's stuck. He wants a piece of this. I'll sell the whole thing. Get it? That's what he's doing. He, need, he knows this guy needs this. Instead of giving him what he needs, he's going to give him what he wants. Meaning Ephraim. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. And I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. He gave it to him. He gave it to him. Why didn't Abraham take it? Why didn't he take it? So, you know, Ephron looks like a really generous man. He's giving it to him. For the same reason as before. Because what is given can be retaken. Anybody can contest that gift. It's not lasting. Okay? So he knows what he's doing. I'll just give you the whole thing. You take it. And well, later on, I'll come back and say, well, no, it's not yours. I'll take it back. Okay? This is cutthroat negotiation. Abraham knows that. Abraham bowed down before the people and he bows again. Even though, even though, essentially, they're mocking him, and even though they're not treating with him uh, in, right, righteously, they're taking to take advantage of him, he still bows down. Here's the lesson of humility. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, again, everyone, but if you will hear me, I will give you the price of the field. He goes along. He didn't want the field, he just wanted the cave. Okay, you want to sell me the field? I'll meet you where you want, to, want, you want me to meet you. Tell me what you want. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. 400, 400 shekel of silver. A workman would have about 10 shekels of silver. A worker, an artisan. Someone who knows his trade will, ha- will be 
will make 10 shekels of silver in one year. One year. He's completely taking advantage of him. Abraham says nothing. Abraham agreed with Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver which he had named in hearing the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. In the ancient times, there was weights that were current across merchants for all, from all different countries. They agreed to what the, uh, a shekel would weigh. And he followed the exact, and he just gave him what he asked for. It's an exorbitant amount. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was at, to the east of memory, the field with the cave, which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. It was very important in the conscience of Israel to mention this because, number one, this is the first piece of land that was owned. Number two, this is a piece of land where the first matriarch, Sarah, was buried. Number three, it is going to be the place where three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will be buried, and where three matriarchs are going to be buried. Number four, Hebron will be the first capital of Israel. David will make Hebron the first capital of Israel. By the way, initially it was called Kiryat Arba. It's literally what it, in Arabic, Kiryat Arba, the town of four, because there were four tribes living there. That's what it meant, and it would be turned later on into Hebron. That's why, in the consciousness of Israel, this passage has particular importance. And that's why they spent so much time on it. This is the first time that he formally owns a piece of land in the land that God has promised him. God promised him the land, but in our mind, we think of God as abracadabra. God says, I promise you this land, abracadabra, here it is. No effort on your part, no sweat, no, no. It doesn't work that way. When God promises something, when he says, I'm going to make that happen, it means I'm going to be, enable you to make it happen with much sweat, blood, and frustration and setbacks and all the attendant problems. Why? Because God shows no partiality. The devil will never be able to stand before the judgment of God when we go for our judgment and tell him, you played favoritism. You made it easy for him to get this and that and the other. What about that other guy over there is going to hell? How come you give him that, the same toys? That's why. Sometimes you wonder, well, how come we are struggling and the church is teetering <clears throat> and all these other people making millions of dollars and doing this and that? How come it's easy for Well, that's why. It's right there. Because you, you triumph with the grace of God in your life. That's what you rely on. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan. <laughs> And essentially, this is bringing to a close, almost to a close, the whole epic of Abraham. We have yet one more chapter to go through, which is the marriage of Isaac. And that's what we're going to cover next, next week. I hope that through this detailed study of Genesis, you have developed, if you didn't have it before, you have developed or you're beginning to develop a true devotion to Abraham and to Sarah. I hope they're no longer... You know, the pudgy, smiley little figures that you've seen in your children's book. And they're turning into what they really are, saints. And they are 
examples set before us, there are people we can meditate on our lives and understand our lives in light of theirs. That's why Scripture was written. It was written for our own good, to teach us how to live before the Lord. That's why. God bless you. We have some time for questions. The, the question is, uh, there's a law where if you buy a piece of property, you, have to, you own it for seven years and you have to give it back. The law specifically says that if your brother sells his property, which is his own, then after, um, is it on the seventh year, it returns back to him on a jubilee. jubilee. Yes, yeah, but that was within Israel. That's exactly what he wanted. Because essentially the whole land belonged to him and not to no one. And that's what he wanted them to do. He wanted them to return what was what they have um, what they have bought to the rightful owners at the jubilee year, which is a year of freedom. That's what the law was about. Yes. Yes. So the question is, how do we, you know, this Jesus made this promise and he fulfilled it on the cross. Effectively, he brought this promise to its complete end. We do overcome the gates of our enemy. We do number like the, the, the stars in the seashore of heaven. We do, um, and all nations are blessed by the church. These three things are happening. The problem is oftentimes these are not the most important things for us. Because we want to live for us, not for God. We live for the greater glory of God. Right? And out of this living for His glory, we receive our glory and our happiness. That's how it works. Instead, we want to live like the pagans, only for ourselves, where much unhappiness results. Because of this focus and because of our lack of understanding of the church, her central role in the plan of salvation, how important the church is for Jesus, we fail to understand that all the events that happen today, all of them are set before our eyes because God is working on removing the existing obstacles that are preventing the church from performing her missionary work, whether within the church or without the church. And that's how God governs the world throughout the new ages as a political obstacle rises that prevents the church from moving forward and doing her missionary work, God removes him. When, um, when um, a man came and told Stalin that uh, the church was against him, Stalin answered, how many tanks does the Pope have? Okay. Where is Stalin? Yeah? When a man came running to a cardinal, I remember the name of the cardinal, telling him, Your Excellency, Your Excellency, Napoleon is set on destroying the church. The cardinal looked, looked at him and said, Well, that's impossible. We tried and we failed. Okay? Those point to the fact that the church has survived 2,000 years of people trying... You, remember, you know, there are times where the, there were three popes. Or, I mean, there was one pope, but there were two others contending that there were popes too. Rome was sacked three times. And the church is still present. And all these empires that rose against the church and tried to break her down were broken. And this one will not be different than any other ones. And it's the usual means 
political means, economical means, um, scourges, earthquakes, and natural disasters. All these means are brought about, as described in the book of Revelation, to remove the obstacle that prevents the church from performing a missionary zeal. And that's what we're going through right now. It isn't a crisis of um, doubt about who is in authority here. It isn't a crisis of um, where we're going to go or what the outcome is going to be. The outcome is given. The outcome is known. We win. That's a given. But we forgot that. Why? Because of our lack of zeal and love of the Catholic Church. That's why. Okay? But all your sufferings and all your pains and all the things that you go through are united with Jesus Christ on the cross to effect salvation of souls. Imagine when, God willing, you reach heaven, and as you're about to enter heaven, there's a lineup of 30,000 souls. And as you walk by them, each and every soul is saying, thank you. Thank you. And you've never seen them before. You don't know who they are. They're souls you saved. So here's the deal. When you get to heaven, God willing, you want the lines of people who's going to tell you thank you to be longer than the lines of people you're going to have to thank. Right? See, we don't think this way. We don't act this way. It's not our focus. We're so distracted by what's out there. Right? The Yankees versus I don't know who. I mean, this becomes of paramount importance for people. But that's the... This is where living is, in the church. Yeah? Any other question? Yes. Very good question. And here's the answer. This is what's so beautiful with the Catholic Church. You don't have to listen to me. Just go to your mother. Your mother will never lie to you. There is... um, a book called Dogmatic Constitution of the Catholic Church. It lists all the dogmas that we have to believe. That's one of them. It will point you to the, to the councils. It will point you to the encyclical documents. It will point you to the teachings of the fathers and the doctors of the church. And you can see all those statements and sayings that are made that reaffirm this thing that I just told you. You have a independent source to validate what I'm telling you. The Catechism actually says the same. John Paul II said the same. It, there was a huge uproar, but he reaffirmed, actually, that the one who wrote the text was none other than Cardinal Ratzinger. Okay? It's a dogma of the Catholic Church, and it's a very important one. And they will point to you the whole notion of the Ark of Noah, and we've seen that. Those who were on the ark were saved, right? Only those in the ark were saved. How many arks were there? One. The ark is the church. You're in it or you're out. Not complicated. It's one family, one father, one mother. Christ doesn't have 14 brides. He doesn't have 33,000 brides. He had one. What, what kind of God do you think? Think about it this way. Not... Naturally, talk. Suppose you had an extraterrestrial who just showed up, and you tell him, "Look, I'm going to ask you. What do you think? There are two gods out there. One god has one bride, and tells us, 'You are my son. You're the son of my wife. We're one family.' 
The other God has 33,000 of them. And when you go ask one of them what, what she thinks, she'll tell you something different than the other one. And he says, all these people are my kids. What do you call a God like that? What would you want to believe in him? How could God so mislead us that you have to have 33,000 Protestant denominations out there who do not agree among themselves? How could that be a good God? Is God playing games with us? I mean, is not enough what we have? He has to add that on top of it? Where's the charity of God? Where's the love of God? To put us in darkness about the truth of salvation. God is not a mad scientist playing with us like mice in a, in a labyrinth. He told us, you shall know the truth. Well, we better know the truth about those things that we need to know that, that determine our salvation. Right? So, from a point of view of common sense, from a point of view of the teaching, the magisterial teaching of the Catholic Church, from a point of view of love and charity, all of it point to one church. But yeah, you know what? You have family members who are outside the church. You're talking about your kids. I can talk about the rest of my family. Okay? I, mean, don't, don't, I don't want you to think that this is easy, especially today. But no matter how easy, no matter how hard it is, we've got to proclaim the truth. For if we don't proclaim the truth, we're lying to people. We're pacifying them. You know how this shows up? Very, very easy. You go to funerals. What happens to funerals these days? Every funeral canonizes a saint. Without exception, every time somebody's dead, what do we say? He's in a better place. I shiver when I hear this. You think the business of no salvation in the Catholic Church is hard? Wait till you hear the next one. This is not dogma, but all the fathers of the church are unanimous on this one. You don't find dissension between them. The majority of the people, Catholic or not, the majority of the people go to hell. The majority. Not one father says otherwise. But no, today we shouldn't tell these things to people. You don't want to rile them up. Let me ask you this question. Let me throw it back at you. You have a good man, a good guy. He's Protestant, he's Muslim, he's, Jewish. he's a great guy, he's a wonderful guy. And he's, he's going to heaven. He gets there. The pearly gate is right there. And in the case of a Jew, Moses and Abraham and Jacob and Isaac are still waiting on him at the door. And he, they want him in. They're calling him in. He gets there. He's about to step into heaven. He takes one look. And he sees the Blessed Virgin Mary enthroned. The angels and the saints reciting the rosary before her. What do you think he's going to do? Would that be heaven to him? Do you understand the question? Do you understand my answer? It's not complicated. We choose to go to hell when we do not choose Jesus Christ and His church. It's our choice. That guy who is a Protestant, to him Mary is just a vessel. You know, she doesn't count. Same deal. Gets there. Paul is there. Peter is there. The apostles are there. Everything is wonderful. He's about to step into heaven. He takes a peek. The Blessed Virgin Mary is on a throne. All the angels and saints are bowing their knee before her, and they're reciting the rosary. How is he going to feel about that? You understand, when we die, God doesn't perform a lobotomy. He doesn't just open our brain, take it out, put a new one instead. What we believe in, what we live by, is what we take with us. It's not going to change. 
we overcomplicate things. We make it like a mystery when, in fact, it's really straightforward. Do you understand? That's why. That is why it's so important to believe, to believe, to turn our mind, our hearts, to the truth of the church. Now, you might have people, you might have people who are genuinely turned to Jesus. And basically, whatever Jesus says, they'll believe. And let's say they died not knowing about the Catholic Church. Right? But whatever Jesus says, they believe. They're in love with Jesus. So right before they die, Jesus pours into their hearts all the truth of the Catholic Church. It's Jesus who says it, I'll accept it. The more, the merrier. Those guys are obviously Catholic. Make sense? That's how it works. Pardon? Think about Dismas on the cross. The good thief. Amen, amen, I say to you, today you shall be with me in heaven. Right? It's the desire. Those are claimed by the church through the mercy of Christ. It's those who oppose the church who are in trouble. You understand? Yes. Right. The baptism is the beginning. You understand? When you're baptized, you are incorporated into the, sanct- the, the sanctifying life of Jesus Christ. Right? He essentially pours into your heart His graces. Which is, by the way, what the Protestants deny. The Protestants, all of them deny that we are changed by the work of sanctification. To them, to take the, word, the words of Luther, we were a pile of dung before. We're still a pile of dung after. The difference is that Jesus put on, on us a white sheet. And when God the Father looks at us in His wrath, He sees the white sheet and His wrath is deflected. This is what they believe. The Calvinists are a little bit better, but not by much. Their belief is very different than ours. There's no sanctification going on. That's why I don't believe in purgatory and offering our sufferings. uh, None of that. There's no sanctification. So let's go back to this. You're grafted. Now you have to maintain it. Because you have free will. God is not going to force it on you. Right? What does that mean? It means you must, you are duty bound to learn about the truth of the church and grow in the love of the church and remain a daughter of the church. Now if you're one foot in, one foot out... Right? Your reality on earth. But up there, there is no one foot in, one foot out. They're two feet in or out. So you pray for these people that they finally declare themselves children of the church. And truly love the church. Okay? Well, that's because they don't love the church. You see? You don't love the church. That's, that's the thing. It's convenience. A lot of people are in the church because it's convenient to them. It matches their belief. St. Thomas Aquinas teaches anybody, anybody who denies one truth, one truth taught by the Catholic Church, one truth taught by the Catholic Church has no faith in him. Faith is not a continuum. I got 5% faith, you got 7.5% faith, she's got 12% faith. Don't work this way. You have faith, you don't. Why? Because faith is being a daughter and a son of the Catholic Church. You're either a son and a daughter or you're not. There is no in-between. God kept it simple. We want to overcomplicate it to account for all those people out there whom we care about the wrong way. 
Once you understand what you have to do with me, but it's a lot easier. You get on your knees, you trust God, you use so many devotions we have, you entrust them to the sacred heart of Jesus, you say the chapter of divine mercy, so much can happen through the graces of the church to bring them back. Now you're on your way. You'll become a real warrior of God. Before that, you're on the sidewalk. It's okay. As long as they live a good life, as long as they live a good life, it's okay. It doesn't matter. And that paralyzes you completely, which is what the devil wants. You understand? The more you talk about the church to others, it it helps others save their souls. Because everybody talks about Jesus. The Mormons talk about Jesus. The Muslims talk about Jesus. The, the Jehovah Witnesses talk about Jesus. The Protestants talk about Everybody talk about Jesus. It's the church that is the determining factor. You can sit with a Muslim, and you can sit with a Jehovah Witness, and with a Mormon, and with a Protestant, and everybody's talking about Jesus. And everybody's holding hands, and everybody's warm fuzzy. Okay? It means absolutely nothing. It's only when you speak of Jesus, the high priest. You only speak of Jesus, of his sacrifice, of his church, for whom he died, that you're not making a difference. You understand? That's what makes a difference. Let's end with the word prayer. Please stand. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Dear Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for bringing us here home. Lord, this is home on earth, waiting for home in heaven. Send forth your Holy Spirit upon us, Lord. Give us the courage and the fortitude to follow you, regardless of difficulties, to trust in you, even in the face of seemingly impossible obstacles, to know that nothing will be impossible to God. You can move mountains. You can move hearts. We entrust all those whom we love and care about And we place them in your heart, in your sacred heart, O Lord. And we ask you to send forth your Holy Spirit upon the whole world and to teach the world your truth and show the world the splendor of your church. And we ask all of this through the one who is the church, the one who shows us the church, the one who fills the church with her splendor. Mary, most holy, your mother and our mother, as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Joseph, Saint Ephraim, all the angels and saints, In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.